Well, good morning, church. Glad to be in the house of the Lord with you today. Um, just by way of quick introduction, Pastor Josh, I'm from West Jefferson in Ash County, North Carolina. It's a small little mountain town. Um, a while ago, I'll just tell you a bit about myself and my, my trek to ministry, and, and then we'll move on to the text for the, today. And A while ago, I can't remember exactly when, but uh, I came to my wife one day and I said, Dear... I think the Lord's calling me to ministry. And like every good wife who knows what sacrifices have to be made and what entails that particular call, she said, Dear, I don't think that's what you're hearing. <laughs> I said, Okay. You know, and I went on my way because I certainly, by leading my family sacrificially, did not want to be a husband that said, Hey, we're doing things this way and that's it. So I let it go. I continued to study, I continued to check into that call with uh, other pastors and friends and say, hey, is this a legitimate call? And it turned out it was, because when God calls you to something, you can't forget about it, you can't let it go. I prayed that He would take it away, because I knew what it entailed, but He would not. And so she came to me a little bit later, um, some months or so, and I had been studying and researching and doing all these things, you know, because I wanted to honor what God called upon my life. And she said, okay, tell me what you had in mind. I'm ready to listen. And I said, well, our children are being destroyed by the enemy. And if you don't know that, read the news. Look at the schools. In some cases, we have to look at our own families. I said, dear, I really think we have to do something for the, for the children. We've got, to, we've got to teach them how to stand firm and bold on, the, on, the, on God's Word. And as I continued to study, and I continued to research, and the Lord continued to spoke to me, I realized that, statistically speaking, if a child comes to faith in Christ, there's about 3% chance that anybody else in the family will. If a woman comes to Christ first, there's about a 20-25% to 25% chance anybody in the family will. If a man or a father comes to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, there is a 95% chance that everybody in that family will follow. Now that's not to say men are better than women. We're equal in God's eyes. It just simply means that's the created order. He designed men to be the spiritual leaders. He designed, designed parents to set the example. And so it changed a little bit. I switched from wanting to, to, to teach kids and children to to the men, to the family, to the parents. And so with that, God burdened us for family ministry. Now that's not to say we only care about families. And really what it means is that we went, when we went into ministry, we felt God had burdened our heart for families. Now maybe it's because we both come from a large family, or rather we have a large family. we got four children, so there's six of us. Maybe it's because we both came from troubled families that have long histories. Maybe it's because we've seen both firsthand and from afar the destruction the enemy has done to families. And in case you're wondering, I'll tell you, it's D, all the above. Not only has he been destroying the family, but when the family's not strong, guess what? The church ain't strong. And if the church ain't strong... Society is going to continue to plunge headlong into sin. Church families are, families are deteriorating at an alarming rate. And you might be asking yourself, well, why are you telling us this, Pastor? What does this have to do with what you're going to preach today? And I'm glad you are. And if you're not, humor me. Without strong, functional families, the church and subsequently society will crumble. And let me make a caveat here, because I know some of us have broken families. I just told you, we both come from broken families. Some of us are in the midst of a breaking family. We know all too well, personally, the wounds that come from families that break apart. Nothing this side of Christ will ever be perfect. But we have to understand that everybody comes from a dysfunctional family. But God instituted families, church families, family families. 
And he has a lot to say to parents on how we govern our families and lead our families and serve our families. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to see firsthand from Scripture what God says. Not only that, we're also going to see what He expects us to do with regard to children in the next generation. And I know some of us are going, whew, he's talking to parents. I can check out now. It's wrong. Because as we're going to see very clearly in both the Old and the New Testaments, grandparents, your parents also, both to your children and to your children's children. In fact, we're going to read very soon, Scripture specifically calls grandparents to tell their grandchildren. So grandparents, this is for you as well. And Scripture makes it very clear that we are one body unified in Christ. One body. So even if you don't have children, if you're in Christ, that is the Savior and Lord of your life, is Christ Jesus and no other, you are a spiritual parent. And whether you like it or not, regardless of what you believe, somebody younger than you chronologically in age or spiritual maturity is looking to you. So it's your job as well to help raise the next generation. Now it's the young people's turn, right? We're talking to parents, grandparents, first parents. I can check out. It's wrong again. Scripture makes it very clear. God's Word said it's very clear. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that you may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So young people, you need to listen up because this is for you as well. And before we get to the text, bear with me a little bit here, but we're going to be um, trying to understand what's going on that leads up to this passage this morning. And so we all know from the beginning of time, that is Genesis, that God's people have struggled with sin because of the sin of Adam. You say, wait a minute, why do you say the sin of Adam? And I say that because, yes, Eve was deceived, but God commanded Adam to guard and protect the garden and to be the spiritual leader. Eve was brought to Adam as a helpmate which essentially means that man and woman were created in unique ways with unique skills for unique roles in God's providence and wisdom so that they would come together in unison and bring glory to God. That's the purpose. However, Adam allowed Eve to be deceived. Just as the scripture says, she gave some to her husband who was with her. He stood by passively. He was kicking back in his lazy boy. And since then, God gave us some 600 rules to mankind because we couldn't even follow one. And as you move through Genesis, you see that there was a promise to Abraham. Well, this looks good now. His descendants after him. We know that this came through Isaac and eventually Jacob, who is the father to the 12 tribes of Israel. They live in Egypt for quite some time, about 400 years, and they grow exponentially. But they become slaves to the Egyptians. And in fact, God even warns Abraham that this would happen before it ever did. But then, two of the greatest words in all of Scripture, but God delivers His people from bondage and reminds them that the tenth plague, the Passover, will be a memorial forever. And so here's what we read in Exodus 10. You don't have to turn there. I'll read for you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. And here it is, that you may tell them in the hearing of your son and your grandson, how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Exodus 12. For the Lord will pass through the smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and for your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, and he has promised you, you shall observe this right. Here it is. And when your children say to you, What does this right mean to you? You shall say. It's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. 
And the people bowed low and worshipped. And then again in Exodus 13, You shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord, but every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, you shall break its neck, and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Here it is. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the firstborn offspring of every womb, though, but from every firstborn of my sons I redeem. Deuteronomy 4. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. Why? So that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. So here's what I'm building us up to, church. God says a lot about our role as parents and grandparents, guardians, authority figures, spiritual parents, however you want to look at it. And I've titled this sermon, Raising a Reverent Generation. And this brings us to our text for this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn into your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Basically, every moment of every day. I'm just going to go quickly to the Lord in prayer that He'd bless His Word today. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be here. I'm so blessed to be a part of uh, part Bible and uh, to just know the Henson family. Lord, I thank you for our safe travels. God, I pray right now that your spirit, Lord, would do a mighty work. The sole prayer of my heart is that God would be glorified, Christ would be magnified, and the Holy Spirit would sanctify. Father, you are capable. Nothing is impossible apart from you. Thank you again for all that you do. Add a blessing to this, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, the first thing I want you to see Moses telling us here is that we have to raise our standards. Raise your standards. And most of us are probably thinking, well, pastor, I have pretty high standards. I dress nice. I eat well. I get enough sleep. I shower regularly. And I would agree, those are physically speaking, those are pretty good standards. But I'm not talking about that type of standard. And I don't think Moses is talking about that type of standard either. He's talking about the type of standard that measures your heart and finds you wanting. That is, it finds you desiring something over and above the Lord your God. The type of standard Moses is talking about is exactly that. When your heart is examined by the Word of Scripture, you're found wanting something, desiring something more than you want the Lord. And it's the choices that are put before you day in and day out. And what standard you use to make that choice. This is the standard by which you measure your Christian walk. The standard you use to make the choice between God and not God. And church, the entirety of the Old Testament up to this point maintains a very high standard and expectation to the people for whom it was written. And that was both the Israelite and us. And basically, in its most simplistic explanation, it's saying this. God is God You and I are not. I'll say that again. God is God and you and I are not. And for that very reason, you and I should model our life around that. That's the expectation by which we see Moses writing and leading up to these important verses here in Deuteronomy. Let me me try to explain what I mean. There's ways of doing things when it comes to building or measuring that uh, I don't have the capacity to understand. I'm not a builder. And most of you probably know what a plumb line is or a chalk line and what it's used for. Now, if you don't, that's okay. I'll tell you that as well. 
These are tools, when used in accordance with their expected purpose, can provide an accurate measurement for a line when cutting, measuring, or building. Plumb lines mostly used to measure distance or depth. And sometimes that's exactly what it's used for. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what God says to, tells to Amos in chapter 7. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated, and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. You see, here in Amos, God uses the plumb line to measure the depth of obedience and faith his people had to and in him. It's no different in Deuteronomy verses 4 and 5. Look at the text again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Moses is saying, look, you've you got to raise your standard and realize that the Lord is, is our God. He delivered us. He died for us. And you shall love that God, the Lord, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Over and over again, up to this point, God has continually had to draw back His people because they wander away and dive headlong into sin. Over and over again in our lives, is that not true? Now you may be thinking on the surface, well, I don't blatantly you know, commit adultery or murder. God says disobedience is disobedience. You ever thought about the sin of indifference? That's a heavy one. And here's just a bit of premature application. But ask yourself, last week, yesterday, how many times did I wander and the Lord have to draw me back? How many times did I prioritize the world over God? Church, you and I cannot raise our standards if the Lord is not our God. Or if He's only our God on Sunday and not any other day of the week. You can't raise your standards when you don't love God with all your heart, soul, and might. It's not possible. You can't raise your standards when the world is more important to you than God. You cannot raise your standards when you'd rather skip church or a church event than worship with the community of the Lord. If there's something going on here that's important to your spiritual growth or to help you understand the world and everything in it through a biblical lens, you should be here. I'm not just speaking about Park Bible. Any church that people go to, it's a sanctuary. We call it a sanctuary for a reason. Because when you don't show up, when you don't serve the Lord, you're saying something not only to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but you're saying something to the next generation. And it's loud. It's coming across loud and clear. And I understand, church, hear me. We all face trials. We all face pangs and death and disease. And life just plain happens. This is life, right? Welcome to life. But if we're seeking out the world over church, over serving the Lord with gladness and thanksgiving, or over praying with each other and building community with each other, over and above sharing the gospel and inviting people to church, then we're not loving God with everything we've got. We're loving the world. And if we see God's church as an inconvenience to our life, and we, we don't have high enough standards. In fact, they're very low. Let me just tell you. You know what limbo is? Try to get under that pole. If we're prioritizing the world over and above our love and desire for God, an ant cannot get under the limbo line of our standard. That's how low they are. It's because we're buffet-style Christians in our culture nowadays. You know what I mean. You go to a buffet, what are you doing? Looking at the good stuff. Come on, get me some of that dessert, because it might be gone by the time I get done eating, right? Skipping others in line, moving all the tasty stuff. Oh, Yeah. But when it comes to the meat and potatoes or vegetables of God's expectations on our life and His standard for our life, we're like, mmm, I'm just so full from all that tasty nonsense. Church, from humility and love, let me, let me see if I can show you what this looks like. It looks like people in the pews on Sunday. 
but crickets chirping on Wednesday. Looks like bringing kids to a fun event and not bringing them to Sunday school. Not teaching them at home. It looks like showing up for a Baptist food drive and crickets chirping on Sunday evening. You see, the standard of measure God requires of us is His standard. It's not ours. Ours is subjective. It's relative. What's good for us. God is objective. He's outside of us and demands His standard. His plumb line measures the depth of our heart and soul. Isn't that what Proverbs 4.12 says? For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as to the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able, here it is, to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. That's why when Jesus comes on the scene, people are so mad at Him because He doesn't just say, oh, your outward sin is horrible. You know, you can wear all the right clothes, but inside you're dead man's bones because I look at the thoughts and intentions of your heart. His plumb line measures the depth of our love and affections for Him. And when we're found wanting or sucking up the world like sweet tea, but treating the things of God like it may be an infectious disease, our standards are set way low. And when we have the incorrect standard of measurement or use the wrong plumb line, we set ourselves up for failure. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. I call this the leaning Christian. In 1173, construction started on a very popular and prominent building in a small Italian seaport. Eventually, the seaport grew in prominence, and after the people successfully attacked and plundered the city of Palermo on the island of Sicily in 1063, they decided to show the world just how important they were. Kind of sounds like Babel. They came back with much treasure and decided, hey, we need to build a cathedral complex. We'll call it the Field of Miracles. And the plan included a cathedral, a bell tower, and a seminary. And construction begins in 1173. And by the time the builders got to the third story in 1178, shifting soil had destabilized the tower's foundation. And thus you now have the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Pisa, Pizza, Pisa. And over the next 800 years, it became very clear that the 180-foot tower was not just leaning. It was indeed actually falling at a rate of 1 to 2 millimeters per year. And today, in our day, it's off perpendicular or standard some 16 feet. You see, what they did not notice until it started to lean upon the erection of the third tower was that the ground it sat on consisted of clay, fine sand, and shells. And so church, raising your standards is a matter of what form of measurement you use. If you use your own standard of measurement, eventually, like the Tower of Pisa, you'll start to lean and realize, or maybe you won't realize, that you're eventually falling at an alarming rate. And using our own standard looks a lot like not sharing the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ promised Peter after he confessed him as the Messiah, the Son of the only living God, that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. You fast forward to Paul, what does he say about the gospel? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That means the gospel, the proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and my Lord and Savior is the rock, the foundational bedrock that Christ will build his church on. And if we're not sharing the gospel, how's God going to build his church? He can do anything, but if people ain't working for him, he's going to get you out front and onto the sideline and do, have somebody else do it. Our standard of measurement has to be, has to be the plumb line of God's standard. That's exactly what the scripture says. Therefore, who let him think he stands, take heed. Why? Because he might fall. So what's the application How do I raise my standard and measure by God's plumb line? Well, this is very vitally important to understand, and it's mentioned many times over, not only in Scripture, in the Old Testament, and the New Testament, but it helps us think rightly about this. Meditation. And no, I don't mean worldly meditation or hot yoga when you're mm, trying to clear your mind. That's not meditation. The meditation God talks about is meditating on the law of the Lord. Scripture. Joshua 1.8 This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, 
but on it you shall meditate it. When? Just occasionally, God? Just a few times a week, God? Day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Notice that downward progression. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. So how do you go about raising your standards? Meditate on God's word day and night, and your standards will be automatically raised. Moses mentions this in verse 6 which we'll get to in a moment, but you have to open your Bible more than just on Sunday. You have to get plugged into the church through Sunday school, Wednesday, Sunday evening. You have to... Treading on dangerous water. You have to love your neighbor as you love yourself and invite them to church even when they're mean and hostile. Because we know in Scripture, what profit is it to us if we love people that love us or do for others that can only do for us? It's no profit. You've got to serve. And I don't know what that looks like here, but when all we do is consume what God offers through the local church without giving anything back, we become spiritually obese. And at that point, we're no good. All we're doing is consuming And most importantly, you have to meditate on God's Word day and night. And I don't know what everybody does here during your daily grind. I know we're all busy, but even with an already too busy schedule, it comes down to priorities. Priorities. And whether you use the right form of measurement. Priorities look like this. I could do this, which I think is fun because it's worldly. I could serve the Lord. I'll do this. It's the wrong priority. You have to decide. Like Brian said, God's not a cosmic genie. He's not going to snap his fingers. You can't lift your Bible and rub it and then ask God to do something for you without putting forth the effort. We have to do the work until the end. Even when we see the day fast approaching, which we all would agree is, it's not not a waiting room. We don't sit and wait reading junky magazines until the good doctor comes to retrieve us. We go out and work for our king in the battlefield, despite what happens to us. That's raising your standards. And the second thing I want you to see that Moses has for us here is that not only do you have to raise your standards, but you have to raise your faith. This comes from verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Your heart. And the word heart here he uses is to refer to the innermost being of a person. It's the control center of who you are. That's what Proverbs 4.23 says. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. Everything we do Everything we think, everything that comes out of our mouth, all the feelings we have, the emotions, every bit of it comes out of our heart. And this is not so much the beating heart in your body pumping blood to and fro. Now, while that clearly is very important, it's not what the Hebrew word means here. In fact, that very, very rarely is what it means in the 252 times it appears in the Old Testament. English, we translate it that way because that's our innermost center, our heart. Without it, we would be dead, physically. And then from a biological sense, life literally flows out of your heart, right? Leviticus says the life is in the blood. If you've got no blood, you've got no physical life. But again, this is not what the Hebrew would have saw in his or her mind when Moses said this. And it's slightly different than the soul. The heart is the entirety The soul is like your vitality, where your heart is everything that makes you you. The reason you got up this morning, the first thing you did, your greatest desire, your greatest inclination, that comes out of your heart. 
And so when verse says, verse 5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and might, it's a trifecta, the entirety of the person coming together to love God. But Moses then says that the words he's commanding shall be on our heart. Think of it like this. Your heart is a 50-gallon drum. Whatever you fill it with eventually will spill over into the world and onto other people. You can fill it with the world and it'll spill over. Blasphemy, hate, evil, lust, greed, selfishness. Or you can fill it with God. And that's what Moses is commanding us to do. These words shall be on your heart. Because whatever you fill it with will eventually spill over onto others and the world. So obviously we should want to fill it with God over and above the world for the purpose of increasing our faith. And I've already mentioned this, but Jesus says in Matthew 15, it's not what goes into you that corrupts you, but what comes out. But we all know whatever you put in comes out. So if all you put in is murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander, all those things will come out of you. Whatever you watch will eventually come out. Whatever you listen to, whatever the things you say, the people you spend your time with, all of that affects us and it fills our heart. Let me give you an illustration. James says this though, Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you and I may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If our heart is not full of God, as Moses commands here, trials will come. There's no doubt about that. Nobody goes through life without trials. But when they do come, they're going to produce in you the incorrect response. And instead of your faith growing, it's going to diminish. And I don't know if you've ever heard this story before, but I'm going to tell it anyway. And since the origin is unknown, I'm going to adapt it to our situation. It goes like this. An old Cherokee sits down and begins teaching his grandson about life. I didn't adapt that. That was already there. So there's that grandson thing. A fight is going on inside of me, he said to the boy. It is a terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. One is evil. He's anger. He's envy. Evil thoughts. Murder. Adultery. Sexual immorality. Theft. False witness. Slander. Regret. Greed. He's arrogant. Full of self-pity and guilt. He has resentment, feels inferiority, tells lies, flaunts his pride, superiority, and he has an insatiable ego. He is sinful flesh. He continues, the other is good. He's joy, he's peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy. He's generosity, he's truth, compassion, and faith. He's the Spirit of God. The same fight is going on inside of you and inside of every other person as well. And the grandson thought about it for a minute, and then in all seriousness and thoughtfulness, he asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. Because of sin, life is a matter of two wolves, the dark and the light, the flesh and the spirit. Which one depends on which one you feed? And when we go about our life wantonly, only growing in surface level Christianity, we feed the darkness of indifference. There is such a thing as sin, the sin of indifference. Nothing worse than indifference. It's like watching a child play in the road, knowing a truck is barreling down on them, and saying, hey, you having a good time? Yeah, great, have a good day, I'll see you. And the truck smashes them. That's the sin of indifference. That's what it looks like when we let people go to an eternal destruction with not sharing the gospel with them and inviting them to come to the only place they can hear the word of God and be saved. And when we memorize and store up the world in our hearts, we feed the darkness of lust, of greed, of regret, and arrogance and pride. And the wolf of darkness begins to grow, and what happens is eventually he takes over our heart. There is a point where you can come to where your conscience is seared 
You no longer know right from wrong. And it's already been mentioned, but look at society. Eventually, after it takes over, the very center of who we are begins to resemble a Genesis 6 generation where God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And you may be saying to yourself, Pastor Josh, slow down. My heart's not full of evil, nor does it devise evil. And that may be so. But just like the Tower of Pisa, we should very carefully and thoughtfully take heed because as soon as we think we stand is when we fall. And because indifference in the Christian life is synonymous to being lukewarm, we know all about what Jesus says about that in Revelation. And i got to tell you, I had a cup of lukewarm coffee yesterday on the way back up to the hotel room, and I told my son, this is gross, I want to spit it out. It just came naturally, and then it hit me. My goodness, that's what Jesus wants to do to lukewarm Christians. I pray I'm not a lukewarm Christian. We can say we don't devise evil, but if we're not storing up for ourselves God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him, if we're storing up the world, and the world is essentially the wolf of darkness, and what you fill yourself with eventually spills out. It's just the natural flow of things. And you may not like that to be the case, but it's true. Jesus said, he was very clear, you're either for me or against me. There is no fence riding in Christianity. There's no indifference. None. No room for it. You either store up in your heart the things of God or you don't. And so how do you raise your faith? Well, your heart has got to be filled with God. You feed the correct wolf. However you want to look at it. The truth of the matter is this. If you're not increasing in our knowledge of God and serving Him... That means more than just inside this building. Serving Him, we're not being obedient to His Word to us in Scripture. Here's a reasonable challenge for you. I had this challenge post, paused to me years ago. It makes a huge difference. For the next 30 days, if you're already doing this, God bless you, great. For the next 30 days, spend at least 10 minutes a day focusing on the Lord. At least 10. If you got more, go for it. Start by taking a couple of minutes to pray and ask God to open your eyes. Psalm 119.18, Open my eyes, Lord. Why? So that I can behold wondrous things from your law. And then after you pray, set out to read your Bible slowly and methodically. Don't try to rush through it. It's quantity. Quality is over quantity when it comes to Scripture reading. And take that time to just hear what the Lord would say. Spend about five minutes doing this. And then the next few minutes, focus on a word, a verse, or a particular passage that stands out to you. And here it is. Meditate on it throughout your day. Repeat it to yourself. Think about it. What did he mean when he said that? What is he talking about? Who is that person? Think about it for 30 days, and I guarantee you, God is faithful to change you. He'll raise your faith. And so... You've got to raise your standards. We've got to raise our standards. We've got to raise our faith. And the last thing I want to talk about is we've got to raise a reverent generation, folks. Verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And this is the main thing I want, Moses, or I want us to see Moses telling us here. It's very specific to raising our children in the next generation. And, and earlier, if you meant, or remember, I mentioned that you don't have to have children to help raise the next generation. We're all called. I mean, I've hear, I've hear the government say it all the time. You know, it takes a village. You know, they constantly want to take children away from their parents. It takes a village, but a spiritually Christ-centered village to raise children, not a secular Horrible village. So it's everybody's job. But this particular portion is very focused on those over the charge of little ones. And guess what? That's everybody. Parent, grandparent, guardian, authority figure, spiritual parent. Whoever teaches, leads, raises children. And I save this for last for two reasons. The first is that's the way it naturally flows in Scripture. The second is this. 
If our standards are not high, if our faith is not high, increased, as current leaders, guardians, parents, grandparents, if our faith is not right, there's no way we can raise a reverent generation. If we're selling out to the world and and living for the world and and only talking about God here and there, there's no way we can raise a reverent generation. So if you look at the word diligently in verse 7, I want us to see the severity of this issue that Moses addresses here. We translate it as diligently, but it doesn't really convey the meaning of the Hebrew word in a satisfactory way. This word is used to represent wetting, old-fashioned sharpening a knife. You have a block of stone, you have a knife, put apply pressure, and you sharpen it over and over again. You get that knife good and sharp. This is an intentional and consistent action. Until God calls us home, this is what we should be doing. You can sharpen the blade once, like some people, put forth the sweat and the pressure, in some cases blood, sweat, and tears if you have kids, and the strength to get the job done. But what happens to the blade after you use it? Eventually it dulls out, and you've got to sharpen it again. Now, I can't tell you how many times when I'm going to cook something at home, I grab a, sh- a knife, and I'm like, I'll just sharpen it real quick. I find that's easy. But when it comes to sharpening the next generation and ourselves, we tend to say, well, I put all that work in the first time. I'm just so tired and wore out. I don't think I want to do it again. And then you see a society that we have today. You can see the benefit of keeping the blade sharp. Yes, it's hard work. But you have to do it. At our church up in Ash County, we had a what we call a kids camp back in July. It's a program week long. One of our crafts that we did was to stamp or engrave the words, the Lord's Prayer, on a set of praying hands. That was our theme, the Lord's Prayer. And so one of our volunteers stood over this table for what seemed like probably the better half or the entire morning, took a hammer and a chisel, and would hammer it into the leather hands. Each letter had a different chisel, each one. And each time required that hammer to come down on it, come down on it. And here's what I'm trying to say. Impressing these words upon not only our heart, but the heart of the next generation and teaching them diligently is exactly that picture. Takes effort, takes work, takes sacrifice. Nothing good ever comes by laziness or easy. So mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, authority figure, spiritual parent... Anybody that's over children in any way, we have to understand that, like the blade, you cannot simply sharpen them once and be done with it. You can't. you got to keep at it. It's an ever-consistent manner all the days of your life. Because when we go to stand before the Lord, every single one of us, it says, the Scripture says very clear, we will be caused to give an account. God's not going to say, hey, can you tell me about that time, you know, or hey, would you feel like you want to talk about such and such? We're going to stand in the presence and the holiness of God. And like Isaiah, when he saw a small vision of it, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Oh, woe is me. I am undone. And God will compel us to give an account for what we did with our life. You've already seen the signs in our society of a generation not far from the brink of godlessness. But know this, and this may hurt a little bit. It hurt me. But the only people to blame are mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, great-grandma, great-grandpa, and so on and so forth. This is why Moses talks about this so much and why we see it repeated over and over again in the book of Joshua and various other places. The next generation has to be taught to fear the Lord and serve Him only. Because here's what happens if you don't teach your kids or you don't teach the next generation and you don't serve and share. I'm going to read you something from the Minnesota Crime Commission. My kids have heard this a lot. They're tired of hearing it probably. It was published, get this, in 1926 in one of their reports. And it gets to the very heart of the issue. What we would call sin, because we know better, but they don't call it that. Here's what they say. And by the way, the title of it was Little Savages. It says, Every baby starts life as a little savage. He's completely selfish and self-centered. 
He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these and he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty, has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, all children, we were all and still are children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child will grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. And that's the truth of the matter. Every single one of us, left to our own devices and our own subjective morality, unchecked by God's grace and mercy and His effectual spirit, has the capability in ourselves to be the next Hitler. And that pretty well covers the sin problem. But they don't call it that. So why does God command His people to teach their children diligently? That's exactly why. So we don't end up in a society full of little savages. And we read various passages that remind us of how important this is to God. And here's why it's so important. All through Scripture up to this point, we've covered most of it. God says, teach your children and grandchildren. Teach your children. It shall come about when your child asks, what is this? You shall teach them. God doesn't want us nor the next generation to forget. And the reason God keeps reminding us to teach our kids is because if you get past Deuteronomy and into Joshua, what do you have? You have a generation that again disobeys the Lord. They don't wipe out the inhabitants of the land as the Lord God instructed. And then you fast forward to Joshua 24, and Joshua recounts everything God did for the Israelites, beginning from Abraham's father. He goes through all their history and reminds them of everything that God did for them. And then you get to verse 14, and he says this, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. But put away the other gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. I know we're all thinking, I don't worship idols, but we worship our phones. Our gods look a little different nowadays. 15, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living now. But as for for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That ought to be everybody's call. Then the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, He is the one who brought us up, uh, our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And then you get to verse 19 and here's what he says. You will not be able to serve the Lord. And if you know your Bible, you go forward to Judges. And what happens in Judges 2.10? All that generation were also gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which He had done for Israel. Now why do you think we see a generation here in Judges that did not know the Lord? Why did Joshua have to remind the people and call them to repent from foreign gods? Why did Moses have to constantly remind the Israelites and us not to serve other gods? And just as it was then, so it is now, church. We're not far from a Judges 2.10 generation. And when the rubber hits the road, again, we have no one to blame but ourselves. You might be thinking, well, that was from the Old Testament. Well, if you fast forward to Ephesians 6.4, here's what Paul says. Fathers, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And the word discipline here means to nurture and instruction. Did you hear that? We're supposed to nurture and instruct our children. The word instruction means the call to attention and admonition. All this coming from the Apostle Paul, who didn't have children. But he does remind us that Timothy is his true child in the faith. Parents, grandparents, spiritual parents, everybody. It's on us. It's our job. There's no way around that. We'd like there to be, because it takes work. And I realize in this consumer culture that we think it belongs to the professionals, 
But the very God that created the universe and all that is in it in six 24-hour days, the God who sent His only Son to be beaten and slain and spat on for each one of us, nailed to a cross, and then resurrected, that same God looks at every one of us and says, Guess what? You are the professional. God commanded, and we see clearly throughout the sacred scriptures, that parents, grandparents, spiritual parents, and God-ordained community we just we didn't do our job. So what's the solution? Well, the Bible teaches that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. It's not a good way to start. And God is the only one that can change a heart. So the solution is exactly that. God must be in us. The words He commands must be on our heart. And even Paul says, remember, it's the gospel that is the power of God to the salvation. The only way to raise your children in the next generation with any success whatsoever is to raise your standards against the plumb line of God. Because if your standards are low, it will not matter what you tell your children or the next generation. Their standards are going to follow. Do as I say, not as I do does not work. Never has, never will. And the only way to raise the next generation with any success is to raise your faith. How? By prioritizing God and putting His words in your heart. If you don't see church as more important than the world, neither will the next generation, regardless of what you tell them. If you don't see the Bible as the foundational bedrock to all things in this life before the next, neither will our children. It don't matter what we tell them. If we don't prioritize our faith, God, and serving in His kingdom, If you don't prioritize sharing the gospel with unbelievers, it's the only way they're not going to go to hell. And if you don't prioritize praying that God would save His people and that He would increase them and He would increase His church, if you don't prioritize those things, if we don't, neither will our children, and it won't matter what we tell them. The only way you and I can prevent raising a Judges 2.10 generation of little savages is to make Jesus Christ supreme in our life. Christ must be the forefront in your life. You must be the able to God, the one who gave His very best every day, every time, every moment. And guess what? In some instances, eventually it may cost us our life. But isn't it to die as gain and to live as Christ? We're in love with the world so much we're afraid to die for Christ. He must be who you seek when you wake up, who you worship. He must be who you serve. He must be who you love most, who you share. He must be your heart's greatest desire. He cannot be the passenger in your car of life or a backseat driver. He must control every aspect of your heart and soul. And church, if we don't do this, one day we're going to look back if we have not already and say to ourselves, All that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which He had done for Israel. And everyone did what was right in His own eyes. God forbid the day. Let's pray.